This is exactly right. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I said, if this is so hard for me right now to get the right players at the table, at that time my son was in preschool, so there was early intervention involved and the layers that you know we needed to build for him, it empowered me in that moment to say, I, I need to formalize this. I need to make something of this. I need people to know that this isn't right. If it doesn't feel good, it's not good. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your life to the fullest. Today's show is Educational Advocacy with Christine Levy. Christine is an esteemed expert in the field of educational advocacy, renowned for her unwavering dedication to empowering parents and their children to achieve their full educational potential, both academically socially, and emotionally. Christine relieves the stress the complicated process of navigating special education may cause by advocating on behalf of families for the support, services, and placement crucial to a child's success. She has earned her bachelor's in elementary education, a master's degree specializing in students with disabilities, and also earned a master's degree in educational leadership. With over two decades of experience as a teacher, educational coordinator, multi-tiered systems of support coordinator for a K-12 district, as well as the assistant director of special education, Christina's worked closely with teachers, leaders, students, and families, utilizing her comprehensive knowledge and expertise to guide them towards success. Christine's mission is to empower individuals with disabilities, helping families and students break through barriers, gain essential tools, and achieve their fullest potential. We are completely aligned here. Christine, welcome to the show. You took the words out of my yeah. mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so aligned. Alignment. I love it. Oh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today, um, both about your path and about our shared experiences being on both sides of the table, which we'll talk about um, as professionals and as parents. So, I'm first wondering if you, I'm curious to your path to special education. In my experience, it takes a special person to go into special education. Oh, well, I think I would agree with you on that. Um, I actually started on my path pretty early. Um, my mom was a school psychologist, and part of her career, she worked at an intensive day treatment program. And it was a 12-month program. So sure enough, on some summer days where I could have been at the beach, she would pack me a lunch and off I'd go to help her out. Mm. And that was truly, for me, the time in my life where 
I could see things from every angle. I would go in with my mom. I'd see the students who were young adults um, kind of navigating a workshop model. They had some purpose, some some job coaching embedded. And I could see the flow. And I had a lot of questions. Um, and I'd kind of, you know, on our rides home back to our house after work, I'd, I'd say, you know, Mom, why did the adults have to do these morning meetings every day where they're looking at weather and time? And she said, oh, well, you know, predictability, routines, very important. I was like, they don't look like they're having fun. <laughs> so by the end of the summer, the, the young adults called me the morning meeting girl. The teacher actually let me go in. I think I was about 14 hmm. and, you know, put some things in action. We would take walks outside to look at the weather or the environment. We brought in music to listen to in the morning. And that was truly seeing the joy um, of the students and saying, wow, we can make this really engaging. Mm. You don't have to do the same thing every day. And so that to me was my mission to say, okay, now I need to get these degrees. I need to get these certifications. So I mm. went to the University of Rhode Island. I got my degree in elementary education. I pushed myself to New York City to get out of Rhode Island to see, you know, what else is out there. And I worked for a, the Hewitt School in New York, and I was getting my master's at NYU. And I probably put in the bare minimum of teaching years. I remember when I went to Bank Street College to apply for their leadership, um, a professor that really impacted my life looked at me and he's like, how many years have you been teaching? I said, five. I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Yeah. yeah your program said five that I could try to, you know, do leadership and administration. And so that was where I knew my heart was. I wanted to be at, you know, the, a hand for the teachers to, for resources. I wanted to work with families and I wanted to lead. I wanted mm -hmm. people to better understand that circling back to my story when I was, you know, 14, we can bring joy. We can mm -hmm. get kids engaged. And that really was my mission in entering special education. I hear so often um, in talking to people on the show, whether they go into mental health or education or nonprofit work and all of the other allied service um, fields about these wonderful stories of joining parents and parents allowing their children or their teens to come with them and how impactful that is on their trajectory. And it seems like right away, your creativity, your creativity kicked in right away. You're like, you're observing. You're like, okay, what's going on here? Why do we do this? Okay, now I understand why we do this. But oh man, there's got to be, there's got to be a way where this can be way more engaging for the adults and the students. And and then you just you ran with it. I mean, it seems like well, there was a spark there that just it was kindled right there. Yes, for sure. It was definitely a spark. And it's a spark that I continue to bring when I do sit at the table. Mm -hmm. um, because I think during this time in education, we need to push our thought leaders, we need to push our teachers and give them autonomy. And, and I, I feel as though when I'm at the table with the families, and because I've been at both sides like yourself, I'm I'm very aware. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that piece is priceless. And it really differentiates me from other advocates. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important because you understand the budget side of things, being a mm -hmm. special ed administrator in a public school district. You understand the law, federal and state requirements. Um, you understand the emotional piece as a parent and how it can feel like such a long, drawn-out process to get mm -hmm. 
your your child what they require and deserve. Mm-hmm. And so going back to that spark, it it's just ignited in everything I do in working with kids and their families now, especially. Let's go back to before you were a parent and you were an educator, um, both a, a regular educator and a special ed educator. What what has changed? You know what what is different for you now, being an advocate, um, advocating for your child, that you didn't have. Like, what information did you not have when you had yet to have those experiences? Oh, that's a really good question. I truly believe that teachers feel when I was a classroom teacher, you feel a little bit isolated. Um, Sometimes you feel like you're wearing so many hats and that you have to, you know, teach the core content curriculum. You need to differentiate for all learners, um, the social emotional aspects. And so now as a parent, I know that general education is first. You know, your child is a general education student first and special education is in addition to. So teachers need to utilize the resources and the resources need to be readily available for teachers to access. Whether that is, you know, a a principal that can come into the space and observe And as a parent, I now know to ask those questions, to say it can't just be all on this classroom teacher. As a parent, I'm aware that there's members of the team sitting at this table that may not have day-to-day, you know, interaction with my child or the child that I'm advocating for, but they bring a lot of expertise and knowledge and so now as a parent, I'm, I'm aware that in education, we tend to operate in silos. And when you can sit at a team meeting and have a meaningful conversation and utilize the resources, that to me is a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, from a teacher, mm-hmm. I thought to be a good teacher, you need to wear all the hats. You mm-hmm. need to take responsibility it falls on you. And, you know, you have the directors from administration and the politics that go around the educational system. But truly now as a parent, you need to rely sometimes on the experts and sometimes on people that wear other hats. Mm -hmm. What changed for you being on the side as a parent like was there anything that you were like oh i didn't fully grasp this aspect until now sitting on this side to be honest i think because of who i am that i would always want to meet the child when i sat on the side of the table as a special ed administrator or as a teacher, Mm -hmm. because truly it looked a lot like just getting to know someone on paper. And I would make it a point to be able to come into a meeting at a district level with, you know, four elementary schools, two middle schools and high school and say, I met Johnny Johnny, you know, really shines when he's in in workshop class and he's definitely a hands-on learner. And, you know, just those connections, I think, are really important. And I learned that, that when I'm sitting at the table as a parent and people aren't making that effort to really understand and get to know my child beyond the data and beyond the data points and the diagnoses, That to me is, you know, a very, very, probably the most important piece is that Mm -hmm. everyone at that table has laid eyes on the child. See, you are special because you were doing this on the other side when you were representing the districts um, and your private school. You, you, it, it sounds like you were still invested in the child 
and meeting the child. And we could have used you as a uh, special ed administrator uh, for me and, and many of my clients over the years. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. So that really is, um, I just want to, I want to highlight that for everyone. We don't always run, we unfortunately don't always have those types of individuals or teams operating because of a lot of different factors, um, just um, under-resourced, overworked. Um, there's just a lot of stresses in these systems, particularly during and post-COVID, still people, uh, districts trying to catch up uh, to that. And I could say that when, when we went through our uh, our first child started to um, we had uh, have her tested for learning difference, and then so not only having her tested, and then following up with an um, a student study team meeting and IEP meeting. I had already been in the field for probably about seven years, doing a lot of evaluations and sitting at a lot of meetings advocating. It wasn't until I was getting feedback from a psychologist who was a close friend, so optimal situation about our daughter's profile, and then sitting in these meetings and feeling completely powerless and talked over and not understood. I was, it just, it changed, it changed the way I understood the experience and it changed the way I practice being in that parent role. Uh, I can't agree with you more because that's typically how the clients that I do work with, the level of frustration around the process in general, um, the use of acronyms that <laughs> don't right. have any meaning in real time for families, um, the multiple players that come to sit at the table that truly don't know your child, but have all this information to share that is going to either lead your child in one pathway or another. So your experience, even with the level of background you have and the level of background I have, and that's really what transpired me in mm -hmm. 2022 was when I was sitting at the table for my son. Mm -hmm. and said to myself and looked at my husband, we was all on Zoom. And I said, if this is so hard for me right, right now right. to get the right players at the table, at that time my son was in preschool, so there was early intervention involved and the layers that you know we needed to build for him, it empowered me in that moment to say, I, I need to formalize this. I need to make something of this. I need people to know that this isn't right. If it doesn't feel good, it's not good. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is so important because it also brings the point, as you said, if you and I, with all of our experience, are finding the situation stressful or overly stressful, difficult to navigate, um, hard to understand the process, um, the timelines, everything, um, all of the ins and outs. My wife and I talk about this all the time. She's a public health nurse and she works with lots of families that either do not speak English or English as a second language. All the paperwork, all the acronyms, all of the bureaucracy, I mean, it is overwhelming. And this is why what you do is so essential and why we need to let people know there are such things as educational advocates that can come in and translate literally the process and the system and advocate for you in a way that empowers um, before too much time goes by and too much pain and too much loss of too much stress for the child and um, all the the shrapnel that ends up developing and scar tissue over time when students with needs don't get their needs met in school. I feel as though the cases where I am sitting at perhaps a middle or secondary high school spot, the amount of undoing of things that should never have happened or should have happened is 
a point that brings so much emotion and frustration to families. And I, I do say to families a lot, if you feel like something isn't right, just, you know, call a friend, call, go to your pediatrician, use the resources you have first mm -hmm. to say, this doesn't feel right. Do you have experience in this? Perhaps it will lend itself to needing an advocate. And, you know, obviously I'm, that's why I'm here, but I feel like parents go in pretty blindsided and it's important that we do empower them with or without an advocate, that they can truly have a sense of calm at the table and understanding. Mm -hmm. So there's a stereotype, and we know that with all stereotypes, there tends to be some granules or more of truth that create the stereotype. And I can say I experienced it for several years um, early on in my career, and that is that advocates are... Um, let's just say combative, um, it can be very, um, direct and, um, I'll just use those words for now. And, and that as I experienced was not always very helpful. Like the, the person who was in the advocacy role was completely passionate and right there for, for the parent and the child. But I would sit there as a team member and be like, okay, this is not helping, even though we do need someone to help with rights and needs. And so I'm wondering about in your experience, how much of that is myth, stereotype, and reality um, mm -hmm. for the field, your field of educational advocacy? So my mission <laughs> is to come in in a very collaborative manner. Yes. Because... As a teacher, as a special educator, as well as an administrator in a school district, we have had advocates come in that are very combative. Um, it almost seems as though they create a sense of us versus them, um, a very, it, it be, can become very targeted towards the child in terms of the way that the advocate makes everyone else feel about their work with the child. And so because I've had experiences that are negative when I've worked with advocates, I know that when I come into a meeting, I'm coming in really with the lens of the child and what the child requires. And I, I try to avoid at all costs other team members that can be combative. Mm -hmm. um, yes. and, and again, sadly, those are sometimes the educational leaders working in that district that right. Right. don't want to hear anything that they could do differently. Mm -hmm. And one of the lines I get is, well, our district doesn't do it that way. Right, right. And to Which, me, that's just a loaded. That <laughs> is, right. Which sometimes means um, the, the paraphrase that um, is, um, well, our district doesn't follow the law. Like really when it comes down to it some of the times, and again, I'm not, uh, we're not talking about anyone or any district in particular, but we know whether it comes to dyslexia or it comes to timelines of when you start the process and when you finish the process, um, there are state, there are local, state, and federal guidelines and laws that govern how these things go. And a lot of times... It, it's almost like tradition seems to happen in certain districts and certain places where things are just done a certain way. And it seems people forget that they're not literally following the guidelines. And that's when people like you can help educate the team about those laws and guidelines in a way where hopefully people lean in instead of push back. Yes. Yes. And I go back to timing and delivery. Yes. It works with yes. my husband and my kids and it works <laughs> with 
a table full of yes. professionals because there are little glimmers of light for all students. And so when we start off with the child's strengths and where they are finding success, and then you empower the team to better understand the deficit areas. Mm-hmm. And that's where I go back to empower and, and resources. Mm-hmm. More times than none, the classroom teachers sitting there wanting help. Whether the resources aren't available or the child hasn't yet, quote unquote, qualified for them, that's where I feel it's very important that we we start on a strength-based protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we marry that into areas that we can do better. Mm-hmm. And then we layer in the state, federal, and national or uh, local, state, and federal guidelines mm-hmm. and laws. And I reflect on those and I can put them in writing. That's, to me, the process that mm-hmm. needs to be followed. Yes. Because every stakeholder needs to be heard. And there has to be layers of accountability on all parties. And mm-hmm. that's really my mission is to leave the table, not only doing what's right and best for the child and for what the family's asking, but also that one teacher or one leader could take something I said or say, we should really do that for Sam and, you know, Mrs. Smith's second grade class. That's similar to what this student's going through. And we should really maybe track the data for all kids that are in the lunch bunch, not just Sam. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the ways and the avenues that I like to think I'm bringing a lens of professional development while Mm -hmm. I'm at the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would hope one day if I did sit down with leaders and administrators that they never thought, you know, obviously I can be direct and I know what I know, but that, that I am collaborative. And that mm-hmm. to me is a big difference than the stereotype of being, yes. you know, like we had said. Um, one of the things that I wanted to learn from you today is your secret sauce. And you just gave us a glimpse of some of your secret sauce, which timing and delivery, right, is really, there's an art to this, which is like you said, even with, with all relationships, right? Whether it's your, yes. your partner, your child is, is, how do we communicate in a way where it is received, right? So this, this, this really is key to everything. I know that um, what I developed over time in these meetings was really trying to understand the dynamics of what was at play. You know, looking around the room, okay, who, who are the one or two people who are really fighting for this child, if there are any? Who are the people who are drawing the line as the, you know, the, the rule maker, you know, often the administrator? Um, who has a positive view of this child? Who, unfortunately, has a negative view of this child? And then within these guidelines, which we'll talk about in a moment of, you know, whether it's an IEP or a 504, or we're trying to get a functional behavioral analysis, um, or just testing, what are the barriers and how to speak to the team in a way where I ultimately decided, like, I'm doing Jedi mind tricks. Like, my Jedi mind trick is, I'm going to help you do the right thing for this child in a way that you're able to do it with all of the guidelines, with all of the dynamics, like let's do the right thing. And I found over time getting away from the legal guidelines, which we need to, but if we're going against those barriers, let's be human. Let's, let's talk about this child and what can you guys do and how can you do it to support this child in the room? Yes, I, I agree. And I think, you know, I meet families where they're at. So when they contact me, It can look very different for every family. And using my secret sauce, I like that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which truly goes back to an adult development class that I took at Bank Street 
College of Education um, when I was getting my leadership degree. That was the best class I took, adult development. And it truly is understanding and, you know, letting people have a voice at the table is really important. Um, But when families do call me, I, I see a lot of frustration going back to what you said, you know, perhaps you're, you as a family suspect a disability, the child's been in some interventions for reading, you get that outside neuropsych that gives the diagnosis of dyslexia. You took six months to a year to do all that and you come to the meeting and you hand over the report and they say, oh, we need to invite the school psychologist to interpret it. Okay, we'll schedule another meeting. And then we have that meeting and oh, we consider this, but this isn't something we have to follow. And then you say the consider. Okay, what are you considering? Are you considering the five pages of recommendations that my child needs a multisensory systematic approach to reading and writing and structured literacy? No, we're going to put your child into a small comprehension group. What I'm finding is the alignment isn't there. Mm-hmm. It's not a one size fits all. And we lose the I and in individualized. So even if there are readily available interventions that are going on in schools, what's happening is it's not a one size fits all and students are being grouped and it might not be the right instruction. Mm -hmm. So sometimes families leave those first meetings or second meetings. Like finally Sally got into a reading intervention group and they can walk away and get updated every few weeks about data, but it's not the right intervention. And Mm -hmm. so the progress isn't being made. So then we layer in, okay, there's no, you know, there's no group that's going to specialize in decoding and encoding at the level that Sally needs. So we decided, and it just feels, going back to that example, that how can we operate with professionals that are diagnosing dyslexia and schools saying we don't have the right supports? But we do have this group they can join, but it's really not the right fit. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets to a point of families really feeling gaslit. And I I don't Mm -hmm. use that word loosely, but Mm -hmm. they feel as though they're coming in with these reports and this makes sense to me. And this is what we see at home. And when we're sitting down to do homework and the schools are looking at them like, well, he, he does go to a small reading group twice a week, and we'll continue that. Then you ask the next layer, like, where's the data? Mm-hmm. So the process is huge, and I do really talk to families a lot about that on my initial consultation calls because I want to make them aware mm-hmm. that we have a shared vision and goal for your child, but it does take time. Mm-hmm. And going back to federal, state, local laws, there's timelines. You know, teams have 10 days to reconvene, 60 days to evaluate. Mm -hmm. You could really look at a whole school year Mm -hmm. between the the deadlines and things to actually get where we want the student to land to get what they require. Right. And then summer hits, and then you have to start the process in the fall again. And an added layer which you may or may not have in Rhode Island, but we often have in California, is we'll do a comprehensive neuropsych. It will take you know the months that it takes and um, hopefully a very helpful uh, process and document. And you go to the school and the school says, like you said, oh, we have to have the school psychologist. And around these parts, they say, well, we have to do our own testing to corroborate your findings. So now, even though we have diagnosed, uh, this is a bright, capable student with dyslexia, dysgraphia, and some sensory processing issues with some executive functioning and attentional challenges, whether or not ADHD or not. Oh, 
okay, well, we need to do our own testing. It is so frustrating for parents who've gone through this process, who their child is struggling, they're getting outside intervention, um, the school is monitoring, and it just, I don't know, it's just, it just can be so frustrating um, about what is a policy versus just a way they go about doing things. Um, right. And so, and, and, yeah, and I agree with that. And I think when I do work with families and families should know and 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 read their local, I know going into state and federal can be very overwhelming, but right. start with the local level. Believe me, at every team meeting, the districts have these pamphlets that say procedural safeguards and they ask the, the family at every meeting. Some families have 12 copies of them already. But the thing that's missing is no one has taken the time to sit down with this family to ensure that they have meaningful participation and understanding mm -hmm. of these regulations and safeguards. Mm -hmm. And so families may not know to ask at that scenario that we just were discussing. Um, you know, I know this testing has been done within one year. You cannot because of fidelity and validity of test results, repeat these same measurements. Mm -hmm. So what would be valuable? Observations, student data, curriculum-based measures. How does this report really look like? What does it feel like and look like for Johnny during the school day? Mm -hmm. What does dyscalculia look like for him? Mm-hmm. Show us the student work. Perhaps you're organically, because there are really, really good teachers out there who are organically differentiating and accommodating. Mm -hmm. But when it's not written down, it didn't happen. Right. And that's the piece right. I educate families on mm -hmm. is document, document, document. Yes. We have used some disses here, and I know many of you are aware of um, the disses, but I'll uh, just quickly say dyslexia um, is basically a reading disorder. Dysgraphia, which I mentioned, is difficulty with um, handwriting, getting your, getting your written word out, uh, affects writing, and is also often co-occurs with dyslexia. And dyscalculia, as Christine just said, is basically a math problem. It's the dyslexia of math. So they all have fancy names. The schools generally call all of these things uh, specific learning disability in the area of reading or in the area of writing or in the area of math. And, and whereas the outsiders evaluations, we're always looking to really understand the underpinnings um, of the challenges with these labels. Schools are really focused on, do, does a child qualify under one of the categories of disability in the, in the federal law, which is a specific learning disability, autism spectrum disorder, um, a bad name, but ED, emotional disturbance, like that's just such an outdated category for kids who are struggling emotionally, and then OHI, which is other health impaired. So a lot of times the school psychologists, I mean, their job is to say, do you fall into these categories? Not necessarily what, it, there are a lot of amazing school psychologists, I, I just saying, but generally speaking, and I'm wondering if your experience, it's really to see does the child have a deficit that qualifies? What category do they qualify under? Because that often opens the doors to the specific tools of interventions that that school or district has. Correct. So if, if we go back to our scenario we've been talking through and you're at the table, you've shared your results, the team has had the opportunity to not repeat the results or the same test, but to do other measures and when you choose other measures that truly reflect work samples, marrying those to rubrics, where students should be, um, when you ask for the right evaluations from the school, you should be able to really get a true picture, both from the outside neuropsych and the school. Um, and then you know, there's three prongs for eligibility. Does the student have a disability? Mm -hmm. So yes, based on the results for this case of the outside neuropsych, 
If it was a case where the student went through the RTI, Response to Intervention, or now the MTSS, Multi-Tiered Systems of Support process, and with fidelity, because again, there's a lot of questions around that. Mm-hmm. Like, do I do I ever exit RTI? Right. Do I just stay in this tier three? There's a very fine line between right. RTI and MTSS and the level of services and delivery versus special education. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that in a lot of cases, some students with the RTI MTSS interventions have bulkier interventions than our students who are diagnosed with a disability. Right. So again, it's that fine line of being able to say, my child has been in this process. We need to document and we need to move forward with the vows. So for the student at the table, we get the the right of vows done and we look at does the student have a disability? Does it adversely impact their educational performance? That's a loaded question. Yes. Because what does adversely look like that's different for me or you? And the educational performance, and this is one of the biggest hurdles and challenges that families are facing right now, are those hidden disability areas. So when you're at the table and you're going through this process, if your child is doing well academically, is very bright and capable and uses their bandwidth, but is coming home very dysregulated, anxious, um, the levels of emotional stress, school refusal, that is still a category that people need to look at. You can have goals for social emotional learning without having a child that is getting C's and D's and, you know, and F's. And that's another umbrella Mm -hmm. that I think we're not looking at are these kids that are truly trying to hold it together all day. Right. Um, And so when we're at the table and we're thinking about these three prongs, the third prong is to the extent in which they require special education and if the outside testing as well as the school data both show the need that it is adversely affecting them, then they can move forward with specialized services. Mm-hmm. So that second question to me is, is a really big question because we yes. have to look at the whole child. If yes. it's just not affecting them academically, that does not mean we shouldn't be looking deeper. Uh, we, yes, we are aligned. Um, and in many places, the guideline of, is it adversely impacting is what is the state, uh, minimum grade criteria. And in some States it's like the ninth to 12th percentile. And if you're performing at the ninth to 12th percentile, you're meeting minimum grade criteria and therefore you're not adversely impacted. We work with um, lots of bright kids, uh, also known as uh, twice exceptional kids, if you happen to also be cognitively gifted. And those students, you know, there's such a discrepancy between their ability, their cognitive ability, and what's coming out because of a learning difference or disability. And those are often so missed. You're like, oh, well, they're, they're, they're at the 25th percentile. And this is a child who is struggling, is frustrated, is getting depressed, is getting anxious, is checking out because it's a disability. So to your point, it's a really big question of what is an adverse impact and how do we look at the whole child? And I also want to, um, by way of historical education, because you mentioned RTI to let everyone know and correct me on this, Christine, if I get the, the, the dates wrong. But I believe it was about 2005, 2004, 2005, when the Individuals Disability Education Act was reauthored. And out of that came No Child Left Behind and RTI, Response to Intervention, which had a very good intention and conceptualization, which is basically there are so many kids who need extra services and support. 
who are waiting in line to get in special education and either they're waiting a while to get in or once they get in, they're the ones that get it. But if you have a child who doesn't get in because of one or two points, then they don't get anything. So the whole idea with the tiered system of response to intervention is we are going to get you started on remediation and intervention in these different tiers to get you going. And then we will qualify you for special education if you get to tier three and tier three isn't working, it shows we need more. And so conceptually solid. In practice, there were lots of challenges because how to your, to your point, how do you get over to special education and get legally protected, whether you just languish in these interventions, which may or may not be working in the now called multi-tiered system. Correct. You're, you're right on it. My first, and I didn't include this in my bio, but um, my first position in the district that I was um, the assistant director of special education and the MTSS coordinator was called the unified, hold on, unified services coordinator. And I needed to unify RTI across the whole district because oh, everybody wow. was doing it differently. Mm-hmm. And basically, this required a lot of protocols to be built and then followed. So I would lead teams and looking at student data that were at that tier one level that required, you know, the student that every year would just make that benchmark, but needed to start documenting um, the level of interventions that were in place. We put six to eight week protocols in place to come back and revisit tier two students. They might need a small group intervention on a specific skill or strategy that the data showed there's a gap in. And then our tier three students who needed that more intensive intervention. But for our tier three students, like we had said, they can live there for, for a long time unless you start to ask deeper questions. And so that's going back to a big role with families is they'll call me and they'll say, you know, Johnny has been in RTI since kindergarten. And, I, you know, he's he's not making the growth that we should be seeing. And I will do a full record review. And, you know, either the parents are keeping great track of data or we do a request for educational records where we can see the timeline and trajectory and ask those deeper questions because it shouldn't be a death mm-hmm. sentence to live right. in these places. Right. right. You know, I, I, I see that a lot with the lunch groups and the social groups. And right. I'm not sure in your experience, but if we're going to have a professional come in and, and explicitly teach certain skills and strategies to kids, mm-hmm. why aren't we collecting a baseline and setting a goal? Yes. I don't feel like there's there's entry criteria. Right. Believe me. So it's a hard one to get into that lunch group, but mm-hmm. there's no exit criteria. Right. And that's again. Families that are looking for either next steps for least restrictive, you know, why are they sitting in this lunch group for three years or to really get that one-on-one seat with the mental health service provider on a targeted area that the lunch group isn't working on. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, the clarity I can bring to families is, yes, Johnny's getting what he's, what, you know, they said that they've been Mm -hmm. doing. He's just been getting it for a long time and no Mm -hmm. one's looking at the data. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Complicated um, and so important. So what, for parents listening, what is the first thing they should do if they're either concerned about their child's academic, social, or emotional functioning, and or if they already are in the have an IEP or a 504, they're in the special ed system and they don't, things still, their child's still struggling. What do you recommend they do? I recommend that they schedule a meeting with clear intention. They go in with a very clear focus of the, the question they have, 
as well as the people that need to be at the table. And I recommend them preparing and bringing work samples of their own um, and sending an agenda to the team prior to the meeting. I think families feel like sometimes they're bothering teachers or being cumbersome in their emails. And I think there needs to be, you know, a status of this is your child. This is your child's education. You need to have meaningful participation. And so asking the team for a very, um, you know, explicit team meeting in terms of the purpose of the meeting. So you don't want to go in and just say, I want a progress review. They're probably going to give you a half hour to an hour time, which is a whole nother story. Yeah. <laughs> and you need to set the intention. You need to ask the question and you need to set guiding points and send the agenda to the team mm -hmm. so that they're all well aware and you maximize the time that you have with them. Yes. And progress reviews are wonderful, but you're not getting into the nitty gritty. Right. And if it's truly an area of concern in math problem solving, right. bring a sample of the work, show where you feel like your child's breaking down. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be able to get a pulse. And hopefully the pulse is, Mrs. Smith, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We recognize that Johnny has some attentional concerns um, or, you know, we see that when he has to follow multi-steps through math problem solving, he breaks down on step two because he doesn't understand what it's asking him to do. We're going to set up a math intervention plan honing in on specific skills and strategies for Johnny to use independently to work through math problems. That would be a great case scenario. You that leave with be, the plan. Yeah. A plan, you come back six to eight weeks, you check on this, the intervention and determine next steps. Again, you've documented your concern and it's very focused. Mm -hmm. Step two, you know, if you were in that scenario and everyone looked around the room and said, we don't notice that. Okay, you have your work sample. You ask for more measures. You say, okay, could you share... Um, the math curriculum in terms of is he able to achieve 80% or more on unit assessments? Or did you do any universal screening in the fall? I see on your website you do STAR or FastBridge universal screening. Could I have those results? Dr. Dan, some families don't get those results. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And unless you ask. Yes. And so I yes. think... Those are the scenarios. And, and, you know, when we get to that level of the family's awareness that this doesn't feel right, that mm -hmm. they're saying he, you know, achieved a certain score on the star, we have no concerns. They're looking at one or two measures. And right. so the true breakdown was, yes. was in the executive functioning pieces of this task that they're asking him to do. Right. Right. Um, and right. And again, it, it can so quickly turn into a wonderful solution and partnership, but in the same breath, it can so quickly turn into yes. me against them, feeling yes. gaslit, feeling not heard, and time being wasted. Yeah. So in my professional opinion, that would be a time where if you, you know, had a friend in education or a family member or a neighbor to just kind of Ask them a few questions. And if you could, you know, if you feel the need for an advocate at that juncture, I'm happy to help. And those are some of my favorite cases to get involved in because I can really work with that information and get the child the targeted support he needs. Like that parent did a lot of the legwork to really see yeah. where that breakdown was. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And then we can move forward with a clear path. Yes. That is the goal, the shared goal, to move forward with a productive path. Okay. Okay, there's so much more to talk about, Christine, so much more. Um, but 
we have to get to the parent footprint moment question. Wow. Okay. That went by fast. I know. It flew. It flew. (laughs) Okay. So here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your child, and or those you love. So I will bring this back to my mom, um, who has since passed um, from early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. So she... Again, just her passion and her work with children with disabilities and being a psychologist, as well as, you know, the experiences she gave me at a young age to really find my passion. I remember she loved poetry and reading, and we were cleaning out my grandmother's closet and my grandmother seemed like she lived in an antique shop at that point in my life. I was like, we got to clear this clutter out. And there was some vintage bookmarks, um, or they were almost like metal. Um, And one of them, my mom handed me and said, you keep this. And I looked at it and it was a quote, um, ex libris, I shall pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, or kindness that I can give, let me do it now, for I shall not pass this way again. Mm. And that is where I keep it very tight in my heart for all the work that I'm doing with families right now and any good that I can bring to the table for that child for awareness for other children. This is my my path. That's beautiful. Can you repeat that again for us? I love that. I shall pass through this world but once. Any good that I can bring or kindness, let me share it now for I may not pass this way again. And this is all from memory. Yeah. I may have missed up a, a few lines, but. I love it. I love it. That, that truly is mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. philosophy in life. Yeah. And the other part of your secret sauce. <laughs> that's the other part. I, I, I sense there are more parts, but we've got we've got timing and delivery, and we've got this consciousness and intention of being kind as we pass through in order to make a positive impact. Thank you, Dr. Dan. I appreciate you and all the work that you do to to keep this path. I feel the same about you, Christine. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, appreciate you sharing your vast experience and your wisdom with us. And, you know, for everyone listening, you can hear Christine's experience and approach and just even a consultation uh, with her to help guide your meeting or guide your strategy. Um, it's one of the wonderful things about her work is there are so many levels and tiers of support that you can get, and it could just start with a helpful conversation. So Christine, tell everyone where they can find you. So you can find me on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, Levy Educational Advocacy as well as my website. And that has a great um, consult inquiry form that you can complete. It comes right to me. I review and I'll set up a consultation call with you. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks for listening, everyone. I know you know many people who will benefit from listening to this conversation and hearing Christine's experience, expertise, and recommendations. So please share. Thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. They do really matter. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question that I ask myself a lot. What footprint do you want to leave? 
This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com.